this. Also, if you would uh, put up your hand if you need a pen or a Bible, we'll be using both of those here in a minute, and we'll have some ushers that can bring those to you, I think. Yeah, there we go. So, uh, so go ahead and throw that hand up if you need it. As you open your program, the first thing you'll notice is this white connection card. This is for everyone to fill out, whether you are a regular with us or this is your first time. Uh, we'd love to know that you're here. On the back of that card, there's an opportunity for you to kind of respond to some things as well as uh, list a prayer request or a praise that you might have. And we've got a great team of folks that love to pray for you every week. So please take advantage of that. Also, uh, open up your program, and on the left-hand side under news and events, you'll see some things listed there. Uh, The first thing is the Connect event, and that is for folks that uh, maybe you've been coming for a while, maybe this is uh, fairly new to you, but you haven't taken that next step and gotten connected or even gotten more information on how to do that. So uh, February 17th at 6.30 p.m., we'll be having that uh, Connect event. It's a dessert here at the church. We'd love for you to be a part of that. You can RSVP for that on the back of this connection card, and if you're going to bring kids, please let us know how many kids you're bringing so we can have uh, adequate childcare for them, but we'd love to see you there. Secondly, Uh, Financial Peace University. How many of you recognize this guy on the screen up here? Yeah, oh wow, Some a couple couple cheers. Uh, That's great. Yeah, Dave Ramsey, he's kind of like a a modern financial guru, um, and he, his stuff's really good. We've, we've offered his class for several years now. I had the privilege of going through it a few years ago, and it really helped Christy and I kind of figure out uh, what, what to do with our finances. And we weren't in a mess, but, it, but we, we needed some clarification on, on how to work our budget and where to save our money and, and how to get things all kind of in order. So if you, could, if you feel like you could use some instruction on finances, uh, he can help you figure out how to get out of debt. His, his program is really good. Uh, instruction on, on biblical giving and, and stewardship. So please take advantage of that. Uh, it begins February 25th. David Puckett's teaching it. He's a fantastic instructor. Uh, you won't want to miss out. So uh, you can register. There's some info in that program on how to register online. Um, or maybe there isn't. There, you, you register online and you'll get an email. We'll do an email blast or something. So anyway, good luck registering for that. <laughs> Is there a website? Oh, yeah, see, there it is. Space is limited, so register now at redemptionaz.com. I think I actually wrote that, so I should have known that was in there. All right, Uh, and then number three, last announcement for you. Um, We are going to have, hold your applause, a 24-hour prayer event um, starting March 8th, going through uh, Saturday, March 9th, 6 p.m. to 6 p.m. Who's excited about this? All right, the indies are excited. Lovely. Um, so here's what I want you to know. Luke was going to announce this last week, and he forgot. So, um, so I, get to, I get to bring this to you. He's out of town, by the way. That's why I'm up here talking. Um, we, we've, we're going to have 24, we're going to take 24 hours as a church. It's our desire that, that this year, 2013, we would, um, we would prioritize and, and value prayer more than we have as a congregation as, and as individuals. And we thought a, a great way to do this would be to have a big event, create, create a little bit of risk. You know, Luke talks about we grow through taking risk. Take a, create a little risk um, and, and ask you to step out, maybe out of your comfort zone and sign up for at least an hour. Okay, so we don't expect that you'd go for all 24 hours, but we would love for every person in this church to sign up for at least an hour to come and pray with us. And here's the deal. No one's going to embarrass you. Nobody's going to ask you to pray out loud. Nobody's going to ask you to do anything you're not comfortable for, and we're going to lead you through the entire hour. So you don't, you don't have to say, oh, I don't know how to pray, or I'm not, I'm not a 
I'm not a pastor or whatever. Don't worry about it. We'll take care of that. You just show up. There's a, there's a deal on the back. You can turn around and look right now if you want to. There's a, there's a big board there. Um, for you to sign up, there's 24 squares with, with times in them. You pick a time, and you and your family sign up and come join us. We would love to have everybody participate in that. So uh, there will be some time later on in the service to, to sign up. But be thinking now which hour you're going to take. And there's special spiritual points for people who sign up for the the wee small hours of the morning, 2 a.m., 3 a.m., right? This is the gospel, right? This is how God works. It's points for, for righteous deeds. Just kidding. That's not true. But we would love to see someone here at 2 a.m. So please take advantage of that. It would be awesome. should be a good time. All right. Um, let's stand together, and we're going to read the scriptures. Uh, we stand to honor God's word, and we are in Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, chapter 2. Verses 12 and 13, that's on page 628 if you have one of the Bibles we provide here at the church. Jeremiah 2, verses 12 and 13. And as we read, remember, we're reading God's word. Jeremiah 2, 12 through 13. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. This is God's word. You can have a seat. We are on week three of the series, Building a Stronger Church. And uh, we're excited about what this series can mean for us personally and for us as a community. Uh, week one, Luke talked about faith, having faith. And if we can have, have faith more individually, a stronger faith, then we'll have a collectively stronger and healthier church. He said that faith is basically trusting God. Choosing to trust God in difficult times as well as easy times. Week two, uh, Luke talked about drawing closer to the Lord. He called it closer. Part one, that was week two. Um, and we talked about spiritual breathing. Do you remember when Luke talked about spiritual breathing? Raise your hand. I love audience interaction. Thank you. That's wonderful. Some of you are listening still. That's amazing. Um, he talked about spiritual breathing, which means he, he, he likened it to breathing in the word of God and breathing out prayer, like a relationship, right? We, we talk and we listen, talk and we listen, drawing close to God that way. Now we're talking about closer, part two. So this is a sub-series under our general series, Building a Healthier Church. Today we're looking at uh, fighting sin, okay? So drawing closer to the Lord by fighting sin. Sin kind of builds barriers and walls in our relationship with the Lord, and we're talking how do we, how do we kind of move through those. So I'd like to start, and I got, I got to just stop here just for a second and say, um, I'm not entirely sure why Luke asked me to preach this message, but I think it's because he thinks I have a, um, maybe a little bit of a, a more of experience dealing with sin than anyone else on our staff team. Um, so that's probably true, and, and I got to say, putting this together was, was the hardest message I've ever put together, and I haven't put together many, so I guess that's not saying much. But um, th- this, is, this is a difficult topic. It's all pervasive. It, in, it, it infests every area of our world and our lives. Um, there's so much brokenness around us. And so um, it was hard to kind of narrow down where to go and, and what to say. And so I've I, I got a lot to cover. I say that to just say I got a lot to cover. So we're going we're gonna to cruise 
pretty fast. Um, so just, just hang on, hold on to your hats. We're going we're gonna to dive into this thing. And we're going to start by looking at um, the, the common cultural story of our, of our moment in time. Every, every person, every group of people uh, from the history of humanity have lived out of a story, a worldview. Um, we, we create a story that in, in our hearts and in our minds that we kind of use as a reference point to try to explain all the things that happen in our lives and in our world. So, and, and this story has some, some key foundational uh, principles or assumptions or, um, or beliefs that kind of shape and mold the, the way that we tell that story and the way that we see and understand the world around us. It's called, called a, a worldview, or some people call it a meta-narrative, a big, a big story about the world. And um, our, our time and our culture lives out of a very distinct uh, worldview or, or story. And I'd like to start there because um, one of the things that our worldview or the story that we believe, the true story about the world that we put our faith and trust in, whether we're secular or religious or, or biblical people, um, one of the, the things that all of those stories attempt to explain is the reality of evil, the reality of, of, of bad things or sin in our world. And so I thought it would be helpful to start here, looking at what our secular culture, the dominant story that pervades our secular culture, it's, uh, it's based on two kind of core philosophical beliefs. And those beliefs are, number one, that man is basically good, and number two, uh, that, that truth is relative. How many of you have experienced um, the effects of, of those beliefs just kind of personally as you're talking to folks? Have you ever heard somebody say, well, man is basically good, right? Have you, you ever heard that? No? Okay. Good. Thanks for raising your hand. I appreciate that. Um, you, you see this, and it really comes out of a, a worldview idea that's called humanism, believing that man is the, the answer. If we can just educate man well enough or um, if we can grow and evolve and progress uh, high enough that, that man will solve all of our problems. The good in man will take over the evil around us and, and he, will, uh, he will be our salvation. So this is a core philosophical idea that shapes the story of our culture. Um, the second idea is this idea that truth is relative. And this comes as a reaction to the first idea. As we've seen man grow and progress, we haven't seen less suffering and pain in our world. We've seen more. And so there's this other idea that's kind of at tension with, with that first one, that, that truth is relative. There must not be any such thing as good and evil because if man is basically good and there's so much evil, then, then, then how, do we get, how do we get in this predicament? And so what's interesting is our cultural story lives with these two truths it's very common that people will, will, uh, will embrace and uphold them both, even though they're contradictory. Do you see that? Do you, do you see that, that we can't explain evil in our world if man is basically good? If, if, if the culture, as the culture believes, there, there, there's no God, and man is basically good, and creation is neutral, how did evil get here? How did we get in this predicament? So there's some tension there, and that tension kind of bumps into our other ideas and our understanding of sin and what's wrong with the world. And so I'd like to go through a chart with you um, from the perspective of, of our secular culture, um, uh, their view of sin, okay? And they might not use the word sin, but sin, evil, bad stuff, all those kind of terms are synonymous. First off, um, those core philosophical beliefs influence the, secu- the, the culture's view on sin in these five ways. Number one, they see sin as something that's far off. It's distant. It's a, the list of, of what we would consider sins is a pretty short list, and it mostly deals with other people 
other situations. And so we're shocked when it, when it comes into our lives, right? When we're shocked when, when it comes into our communities. The, this, this view of sin is, is that it's far off. Secondly, sin is small. Uh, a common view of sin in our world today is that it's a small thing. It's not a big deal. It's easily overcome by a little more education or maybe a better loving family or a political solution. These are things that we can, we can solve. It's not that big of a deal. Number three, we believe uh, the culture, common cultural story today is that sin can be fun, right? Uh, boys will be boys. Parents look the other way. I'm just expressing myself. I'm just having a good time. Not a big deal. Nobody's going to get hurt. Sin can be fun. Fourthly, uh, the definition of sin changes as our society changes. It's an ever-compromising definition of sin and evil. You see this right now um, with the Boy Scouts. They're trying to figure out what's right and what's wrong. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of controversy about has the definition of sin in this organization changed? Um, you also see it in, in the way that um, issues of sexual purity over the last hundred years in our culture, if you look at kind of the sexual ethic in our culture, it's changed dramatically. Um, the definition of sin is relative. It's changed over time. And you see it in family ethics, the way spouses relate to one another, the, the, uh, the sacredness of marriage or lack thereof. You see this changing definition of sin. And then finally, the fifth, um, the fifth reality for the secular view of sin is that sin is a symptom, not an underlying problem. And so what do we do with symptoms? We medicate symptoms. We mask them and we excuse them. And so you see, this, you see this all the time in our culture. I heard today, uh, getting ready to come here, that the U.S. is about 5% of the world's population, and we consume 80% of the world's painkillers. Isn't that amazing? We, we see a lot of these problems as symptoms, and we mask them. Another way we mask it is with entertainment. Um, here's some statistics for you on the entertainment industry. I find this fascinating because we all enjoy entertainment, and it, it impacts our lives. Over the last 12 years, the entertainment industry has grown 66% in one of the most um, difficult financial periods of the history of our country. Uh, global spending on TV and film has increased $100 billion over the last decade. During the biggest recession in 70 years, okay, the last few years, the book publishing revenues grew by $1.5 billion. In the last five years, the global music industry revenues increased by $36 billion. And from 2008 to 2011, this is crazy, the number of Americans, busy Americans that don't have time for anything, playing video games has increased from 56 million to 135 million people. Um, we're, we're getting pretty involved in the entertainment industry. And I would submit to you, on some level, um, it's because we like to distract ourselves from the reality around us. Not only do we mask it or distract it, we also tend to excuse sin as a symptom. See, if it's a symptom, then there's another problem. And so we try to diagnose these problems. Uh, the, the psychologists and psychologists use a manual called the DSM manual. In 1917, that manual had 22 diagnoses of mental illness. In 1994, it had increased 1,350%. And there are now 297 separate diagnoses of mental illness. And I am not, by the way, um, discounting the reality of mental illness. I believe in that. I believe that that's true. But we t- we, we, we've continued to find new labels and new classifications and new excuses ultimately for the realities of of the sin that is inside us. 
So that's the, that's the way, uh, those are some views that the secular world would have on sin. Let's take it one step further. Let's look at the religious view of sin. And this is important. This is an important distinction. I was having lunch with a friend of mine on uh, Wednesday, and he's constantly railing against uh, Christianity and religion in general. And, uh, you know, he, he believes that, that his kind of secular way of viewing the world is more consistent. It's a better story to live out of. And I keep trying to tell him, listen, dude, there's not two stories. There's not two options. There's three. There's a secular option, there's a religious option, and there's a biblical option, which we would call a gospel-centered option. It's not the same. And he grew up in a, in a religious environment, and it was, he saw a lot of hypocrisy and, and hated it and is rejected. And I keep trying to explain to him, this is not, it's not the same as biblical Christianity. So we're going to look at that second option, religion, which Jesus hated he came and, and had some of the harshest words for the Pharisees, which were the religious leaders of their day. There are two basic assumptions that, that, that undergird or um, that, that the story of the religious community is built on as well. Just like the secular story, there's two basic beliefs. And, and honestly, if we really cut through all the mumbo-jumbo, they're, they're, about the, they're basically the same. The religious community believes that, that man is basically good. And the way this fleshes out, you'd, you'd never hear it said, but the way this fleshes out is we trust ourselves. We give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, right? Our, our response to suffering is a response that assumes that we don't deserve it, which assumes that we're basically good, deserving of good things. Um, and when, when God would ask us to do something hard, make a sacrifice, um, generally we would choose to trust our own, our own impulses rather than the Lord's. We believe we've got, we've got it pretty well figured out. And then secondly, that second foundational truth, again, is that truth is relative. Now this might surprise you, especially um, with so many religious institutions that, that don't seem to change very quickly. Um, but, but I do believe that, that we see this relativism in the religious community. Um, you see it when we, we uh, that, that would kind of identify with, with this story, um, end up justifying our sin or trying to decide which sins are acceptable and which sins aren't. So instead of kind of seeing all sin as an affront to a holy God, um, we might excuse grumbling and complaining, but maybe we decide not to excuse lying. Or we might excuse um, discontentment, but we're not going to excuse, you know, hatred. And so there's this kind of random what sins count and what sins don't. Um, it's a, it comes from, a, I think, a religious faulty view of the world. And so this, this, this um, way of viewing the world also has a problem with evil, much like the secular problem where it's hard to explain an, a world full of evil with a people that are basically good. Uh, the religious perspective has a problem with the reality of evil as well. Um, and they choose to generally blame that on God. So what you'll see is, is problems outside the world. Religious people will, will say, how could God allow that to happen? Doesn't he care about us? And problems inside of us, we blame as God. We just say, that's how God made me. That's just my personality. You can't, you can't confront me with that. And so this also, this perspective has uh, some views uh, on sin. The, these foundational realities impact the way people from this perspective and this story would view sin. Let's look at the first one. Uh, similar to the secular perspective, they believe that sin is far off. Sin is other, another person's problem. Right? You see this all the time in the, in the New Testament. The Pharisees are constantly holding themselves separate from the sinners. 
looking down on them. Uh, it's a holier-than-thou attitude. You see this a lot. You experience this a lot from a, a religious perspective. Uh, number two, sin is small. It's not taken seriously. There's a small view of the cross. There's a small view of God's sacrifice. It's, it's done. It's finished. But, but I, I have license. I can, I can, God will forgive me. There's grace. Not a big deal. Number three, sin can be fun. We'll, we'll sin so that grace can abound, right? I, uh, I saw this, um, I experienced this when I was in college. When I, I got a job at Bank One. You remember Bank One before it was Chase? Um, and the first day I was excited to see my supervisor was a girl that I recognized from church. I thought, oh, cool, like we can have some, I don't know, community. We can t- talk about Jesus, whatever. And um, I was excited that we would maybe be sharing the same beliefs because she went to my church until I heard her talking about what she did over the weekend. And I thought, man, now, now this isn't about doing right things or doing wrong things. But I, I was like, gosh, this is strange that she would spend so much time at church and, and be talking about all the fun she had over the weekend. And so I asked her about it, and she said, oh, that's, that's no big deal. God will, for, God will forgive me. I just, you know, I, I, that's kind of for Saturday, and then I go to church on Sunday, and Jesus forgives me, and it's, it's no big deal. And I thought, what a, what a strange view of sin. It was impacted by um, some faulty assumptions in the story that she used to process how she sees the world. Uh, number four, the definition of sin changes in a religious perspective. We're, we, we use words like frustrated instead of angry. I've done that many times. Uh, we, we talk about using discernment instead of calling it being judgmental and condemning. Uh, my private sin doesn't hurt anyone, so that doesn't really matter. I'm just looking. I'm just dreaming. I'm not coveting, right? I, I'm just going to buy this lottery ticket and, and not put my hope there. Not that you, you can buy a lottery ticket and it not be sin, but I think sometimes if, if our hopes are tied up into it, it's probably a little dangerous. Um, I'm planning for the future, so I'm not going to follow God's will for me for the present. I'm just being careful or wise, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold on to some more of my resources and not obey God's call to, to be generous. And so you see with the, the definition of sin is, is relative. It, it changes according to this view. And then number five, sin is a symptom. Uh, we still see sin as a symptom. And so the solution to a symptom is, like we said, to mask it. And the way this plays itself out in a religious community is people try to look good. They try to justify themselves. They'll, um, they'll, they'll put on a, a smiley face and wear their best clothes to church. And, and religious people, really religious people, you just can't get in. When you ask them how they're doing, they say, oh, just fine. You can't get at the real issues. They won't be honest about their struggles. They won't be honest about their hurts. Um, and then, the, and if you do get in, if you do manage to, to kind of get, get into some of the, the nitty-gritty details of their lives, they'll just excuse it, they justify our sin. Religious people are really good at this, looking at other people. I'm not, at least I'm not that bad, or uh, it's really someone else's fault. You don't understand my past. You don't understand my family. We excuse it instead of take ownership. And so these are kind of the two, what I would call the two dominant stories of our culture, and they're really not very different. Semantics might change here and there, but they're really not that different. And my hope is that as we went through these, that, that maybe one or two of these topics maybe grabbed your attention. Maybe, maybe one or two of them 
kind of got you and you say, oh, wow, maybe, I, maybe I'm living out of that story more than I realized. Maybe I'm letting that story shape my understanding of the world and my life more than I realize. Well, I'd like to tell you the true story, the biblical story, the biblical perspective on this issue of evil and sin. And my hope, uh, my prayer as we go through this is that, that you would hate sin more, that you would hate sin and, and then love Jesus as the solution for that sin more and more uh, in your life. And so we're going to look at uh, two core beliefs, two foundational beliefs that shape this worldview, this story that we believe is the true story of the world. The first belief, contrary to those, those other two stories, is that man is totally sinful, totally depraved. Now, this is not a popular idea. How many of you enjoy telling people that they're sinful and really messed up? How many of you enjoy that? No one raise your hand. That's good. Um, If you did, that would be a little sick. Um, But this is what the Bible says. And it's important to embrace this because this is what the rest of the gospel flows from. And if we don't understand this, if we don't really understand this in our own hearts, salvation is not possible. That's pretty crazy. Let's look at Romans 3. And see what Paul says in Romans 3. He's quoting the Old Testament. And he says, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. That's hard stuff. Revelation 3 says we're wretched, pitiable, blind, poor, and naked. That's, how, that's the truth about our condition before God. That's a, tough, that's a tough foundational truth. Number two, a core belief, is that truth is unchanging. Psalm 119 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Matthew 24, Jesus says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but not one of my words will pass away. When God declares something true, when God declares something right, that, that declaration stands the test of time. And so we have a problem based on these two fundamental uh, foundational beliefs, the biblical story. We have a problem of evil as well. And it's not a problem that, that we wrestle to reconcile in our minds. It's not a problem that we blame God for. It's a problem, it's a grave problem that we struggle through. You see, Jesus said in Matthew 5 that you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And if truth is unchanging... That standard is pretty high. And if we're, we're corrupt in, in our souls, it, it, we're not as bad as we could be, but, but none of us meet that standard. If all are unrighteous, then we have, a, we have a grave problem. And we have to start with this understanding to see the, the biblical story. Let me show you the kind of maybe the five responses to those, those five points uh, that we just looked at. Number one, from a biblical perspective, is that sin isn't far away. It's not someone else's problem. It's close. It's personal. Romans 7 says this, 7.15. Uh, next slide here. Here's Paul. He's talking about uh, the reality of the close personal struggle that he has with the brokenness in his own life, with the sin in his own life. He says, I don't understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin dwells within me. 
For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For, who, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Next slide. Oh, that's the end of the verse. Um, thank you. So, so he's got this struggle. It's inside him. Sin is close. It's personal. Okay, number two, sin is hugely devastating. We're desperate. We believe from a biblical perspective that sin is not small. It's not a easily remedied. It's, it's a desperate condition of our hearts. Romans 7, later on in that passage we were just reading, Paul just throws up his hands and says, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? If this is your first time here, you're thinking, what did I step into? This is the most miserable message I've ever heard. This is what the Bible says is true about all of us. And we can mask it and we can excuse it or we can look hard at it and see what remedy do we have. What, what, what has God provided for us? Number three, I keep saying number three. Number three, sin is deadly and should be fled from. We flee uh, 2 Timothy 2.22 says, flee the evil desires of youth. Because Paul knows, he's writing this letter to a young man. He knows that, that if left unchecked, if you don't flee, it can destroy you. Number four, the definition of sin is unchanging because God is unchanging. Malachi 3.6, God says, I am the Lord. I do not change. Which, by the way, is really good news. But, but we can't change the definition to get ourselves out of this. And number five, sin is the problem. It's not a symptom, it's the problem. And it leaves us exposed and guilty. Let's look at Romans 5 here. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. It's pretty simple, pretty grave, pretty grave reality. And so what do we do? Sin has created... um, boundaries in our lives. It's, it's a death sentence. And based on the story up until this point, the story that we've looked at, we don't have a lot of hope. So what do we do? Well, it's, it's ultimately a matter of desire. Um, why do you do what you do? You always do what you desire the most, right? And we have conflicting desires, certainly, but the strongest desire wins the day. That's how it works. Galatians 5, 16 and 17 shows us this. Let's take a look at that. Uh, Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Well, great. We have conflicting desires. It's it's our desires that animate us, that make us do the things that we want to do. And our desires, interestingly enough, are not necessarily the problem. Desire is actually um, a good thing. It's created by God. In, in fact, all throughout the scriptures, God appeals to our desires in trying to draw, him to him, draw us to himself. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. He, he asks us to, to try out him as, a, as, a, as an answer to the desires that we were made for. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And so the problem isn't that we have desires. Some of the Eastern religions would say, the problem is that you just desire too much. And so you need to meditate, and you need to try to separate, uh, separate yourself from your, your passions and your desires, and try to come up with this kind of 
this separate kind of just really blah person, and then you won't do anything wrong. Well, that's not God's solution at all. Desires aren't the problem. See, Ephesians 4 says that our desires have been corrupted. They've been twisted. And so we're at war with these two kind of warring factions. If we're um, God's people, if we're redeemed by Jesus, and we've been born again, and what that means is a new man or a new woman has been given life inside of you. And so now you have this, this fleshly old man and this spiritual godly new man, and they're at war, and they have conflicting desires. But at their core, they both desire. And what I would submit to you is the core the core foundational desires of our hearts don't change. It's not like we, we are born desiring to be loved and comforted and secure and, and connected, and then God saves us and we stop desiring those things. Um, we have the same core foundational desires. And so how do we fight sin? This is the, this is the main point of this message. This is why we're, we're talking together. Um, we cultivate a desire for intimacy with God, for connection with Jesus that's greater than our desire for sin. And this is a lifelong process, okay? This isn't like a one-and-done sort of thing. You go to the seminar, you buy the product, and, and you're in. But this is, this is the process of learning um, to fight sin and trust God. See, sin is fundamentally a rejection of God. It's a rejection of the way you were created to experience the fulfillment of the desires that you have. Let me explain. God has existed. I think this is fascinating. God has existed for all of eternity. There was no beginning to God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God, existed in community, in perfect community for all of eternity, pouring himself out in love and fellowship and blessing. God is not selfish. God has always poured himself out. He's, he's outward-oriented, and he created us in his image to function that way. When the Bible says we're created in the image of God, it means in the likeness of God. So God is a, a giver. He was created in community to give. And so Adam and Eve were created and put in this beautiful paradise without any sin, without any evil, and they chose, rather than trusting God and engaging in, in community and loving him, they chose to change that outward orientation to an inward orientation. They took their desire, which was a God-given thing that was designed to be fulfilled in him, and they, they let it terminate on themselves. So it says when Eve saw the apple, she saw that it was desirable to make one wise. The temptation was, you want to be like God, don't you? Exalt yourself. Promote yourself, pursue your own wisdom. And Eve fell for it, and Adam fell for it. And they, they took, um, they, in, in this moment in time, the, the created order was subverted. The whole way we were designed beautifully by God for all of our desires to be met in him, it was rejected by our parents. And they said, no, we'll fulfill our desires by pursuing ourselves and not pursuing God. Sin is fundamentally a rejection of God. And so how do we fight sin? We do the opposite of reject God. We pursue him. We embrace him. We desire him. We see him as the fulfillment of our desires. So when you struggle with a sin, you try to find what is that desire at the, at the heart of that sin that's driving me here. Is it intimacy? Is it a desire for, um, for comfort? Is it, is, is it a desire for uh, approval? 
and you see how the gospel satisfies that desire. And oftentimes, we'll have those desires met. Food, for instance, we'll have those desires met in physical things, but we see, we, we're able to experience them and receive them as not the ultimate um, joy, but as a blessing from our Heavenly Father. And, and, it, and it then satisfies our soul, because that's how we were created to experience them. Um, this is the great exchange. Uh, Jeremiah 2, we looked at this earlier. If you still have your Bible open, I don't blame you if you don't. I've been gabbing away up here. Um, but we are finally at the passage that I read at the beginning. Um, Jeremiah 2 documents this great exchange, this sad reality the result of which is brokenness and pain in our world and in our lives. He says, be appalled, O heavens. This is appalling. It's shocking. It's ridiculous, really. If we had eyes to see God as who he truly is, and we could see the exchange that was taking place, that we exchanged God and the presence of God and the, the relationship with God for, for created things, we would see that's ridiculous. No one would make that decision, and yet we did. We were led astray. And so he says, you've committed two evils. You've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and you've hewn out cisterns, broken cisterns that won't hold any water. Have you ever, have you ever drunk uh, RO water, reverse osmosis water? It's pretty good. Uh, Christy and I lived with the Jollies for a while. They're a family here at the church, and they had an RO system. Previous to this, we had only drunk tap water, which is disgusting, uh, but we didn't know that. And once we had tasted, once we had tasted real, crisp, pure, fresh water, we, we couldn't go back. And so that's the offer of the gospel. God says, I'm this fountain of living waters, and you've hewn out these broken kind of bowls of dirt in the ground, and it's mucky and muddy water, and you'd rather go drink from a cistern of of immorality and, and filth and selfishness and all these things rather than feast on me. It's foolish. And so he's, he's inviting us um, to return to him, not by renouncing our desires, but by sharpening our desires, by deepening our desires, by saying the things that I go to to fulfill my deep desires never satisfy me. It's a broken cistern. It can't even hold any water. I'm going to renounce those and go to the fountain of living waters. Uh, C.S. Lewis has a quote. I love C.S. Lewis. You, you all know that. If you were here last time I preached, I think most of my sermon was just a regurgitation of C.S. Lewis. Here's a great quote from him. He says, If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that, our desire, that, that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. He's saying to desire your own good is fine. It's how God created you. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. And so what I've found personally uh, in my own struggle with sin is, is one of the ways, one of the most effective ways to help me fight this is when I'm tempted, 
I ask, what desire is trying to move me in a certain direction? Which desire is trying to animate my actions now in a sinful direction? And then I remind myself that 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 action on that desire won't truly satisfy me, but another one will. And sometimes it's just meeting and spending time with the Lord, and sometimes it's, it's going about God's work. Ephesians says we were created by God to do these good works. The same God who created us with desires. Do you think that maybe the desires he gave us and the works he made for us might kind of meet one another? Absolutely. And so that's the good news of the gospel. Because of Jesus, our sins are washed away and our desires can now finally actually be satisfied. They can be met in him. And so what do we do with these two warring uh, men in us, the old man and the new man, the new birth and the existing kind of fleshly person. Well, we want to we wanna feed the new man and we want to starve the old man. And how do we do that? Well, we feed the new man by drawing near to God, by loving him and loving people. One of the ways you love God, it's kind of hard. I, I, I talk to my kids about this. Daddy, how do I love God? I can't even see him. He doesn't even talk to me. How can I love him? Well, Jesus answers this with the great commandment. You love God and you love people. When you see people and you, you love them, you're loving God. That's how you do it. That's how you work it out. Those people are created in his image. They're a reflection of who he is in, in sometimes a, a, a dim reflection. But that's how, we, that's how we love God. That's how we feed the new man. Spiritual breathing and acts of of love and grace. And then how do we starve the old man? This is the last point I'll make. Don't focus on yourself so much. When you talk about fighting sin, the critical error most people make is they start focusing on the sin. That was the original mistake. Eve turned inward. Adam turned inward. They decided to pursue their own salvation rather than trusting God and moving outward and following his lead being created in his image as someone who would pour themselves out in love. So don't focus on yourself. Don't focus on your sin. Focus on God as the solution to the desires that lead you in that direction. And don't flirt with sin. I don't know why we do this. I find that I do this. Sin is comfortable. It's like an old, comfortable pair of jeans you like to put on every now and then. And so we'll get, we'll get close just to feel a little sense of something. I don't know, nostalgic maybe. But that's foolish. Don't flirt with it. Draw near to God. He's the ultimate source and satisfaction of your desire. Let's pray together. God, in the gospel, we hear the good news that though we are uh, desperately wicked and needy, though we are broken, you have provided an answer to forgive our sin and to fulfill our desires. God, thank you for Jesus and the cross that addresses the wrong that we have done. And thank you for your presence, Lord, that fills us with hope and fills us with life and fills these these inner desires that you've put within us. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name, amen.